Hello and welcome to Three Peas in a Pod, brought to you by the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm Paul Jarvis, the editor, and with me is my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Good to be here. In today's episode, we're going to pick through the bones of the UK's latest attempt to create some economic stability and take a look at a pipeline of water deals in the UK before heading on our travels to consider what's happening in places like Greece and even Ukraine. I want to start, however, with a little reminder to listeners that they are now able to submit entries for the 2023 Partnerships Awards. Uh, We always refer to it as the biggest night in PPP, and it really is a great event. So for anyone listening who wants their project team or company to get global recognition for their work over the past few years, they should definitely be considering entering. Just head to partnershipsawards.com to view the categories. Now, on to the autumn statement. I think the uh, interesting thing with the autumn statement was there was perhaps more in there than we expected from an infrastructure point of view. Um, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, really focused on infrastructure as a key plank of the government's growth agenda. Jonathan, what stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, there was more than we were expecting, but you can definitely see the rationale here. The UK is going into a cloudy period. I think we're already in recession, as uh, Hunt stated, and spending public money wisely was the kind of key message that Jeremy was trying to put forward. And spending on infrastructure ticks all the right boxes on that front. It's obviously a stimulator and big projects like Sizewell C can have a massive impact. So seeing that getting some backing was really good. We have seen successive governments do that. So it wasn't much of a surprise, but it's still very good to see it put front and centre. And that obviously involves private sector capital too, using the RAB model if it gets final approval, which he kind of hinted at. So it's a good statement for the industry. And also on the private sector side, solvency too, we're seeing that kind of finally come to a close. So that's really important in getting that wealth of capital in there. But also we see some things like the levy on electric vehicles. That's another change in the industry. It's kind of moving electric vehicles from an alternative to more in the norm. So there's a lot to be said for infrastructure here. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. The Solvency 2 um, announcement coming alongside, I think Sizewell C may not have been a, a kind of a coincidence in that obviously the government's very keen to get a lot of investment into Sizewell. Um, I think the current plan is 20% from EDF, 20% from the government and the remainder from private sector capital. So um, if they can get institutional investors putting money towards it, I'm sure they'd be very happy to do that. And uh, Solvency 2 is part of the uh, the way I think they're, they're going to try and do that. Or the, the reform to pro- Solvency 2, I should say, is pro- part of the way they're looking to do that. Yeah, the other sort of area of interest, you obviously mentioned electric vehicles. Um, I think there's some sort of concern around that in terms of, is it resulting in making electric vehicles less attractive to to buyers because they're no longer sort of getting some of the the benefits but i guess on the other hand we're meant to be only being sold electric vehicles by 2030 so something's got to give at some point and i think the probably the bigger barrier at the moment is um the actual infrastructure and ev charging so we've still got a lot of work to go on that and there wasn't really any talk of that in what jeremy hunt was saying um, one area he did talk about on energy, though, was energy efficiency. And I think that's definitely an area where there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, really, around the country in terms of 
tackling existing buildings' energy output or carbon output, I guess. And so he talked about the potential of setting up an energy efficiency task force, which I think could be really interesting. It may well benefit from lessons learned on that we've seen in some parts of the country already. You know, London's LEAF, which has uh, been running now for a number of years, uh, Bristol's City LEAP program that's sort of getting up and running. Uh, I think they've shown really how public and private sectors can work together to bring more investment in. I guess the one issue on energy efficiency that was of perhaps some concern is that you know there was talk about however much money, I think six billion already planned for this parliament and and sort of talked about six billion for next parliament. I think, you know, promises of money in the future, particularly when you're looking at beyond the next two years and what we assume will be another election, you know, towards the end of that time, I think, rather than immediately. Realistically, what promises they can make that can be kept beyond that time is is interesting. And um, I was just listening on the radio this morning, in fact, um, Jeremy Hunt speaking the day after the the autumn statement, talking to the Today programme, where he was actually talking about social care reform. um, And that's been pushed back by successive governments over the past 10 years and more. Um, And he was pressed on, you know, well, what gives you confidence that it'll come again? He said, well, you know, it's something that the Conservatives are committed to. Therefore, if it's another Conservative government, I'm sure it'll get through. And you think, well, you could have said that at any point in the last 10 to 12 years. I think there's an interesting moment here, though, as well, where he kind of focused on devolution as well and increasing devolution around the UK. So who's going to be driving projects like LEAF and MEF in London is not centrally driven. So we could see who is pushing these projects forward change away from central government. That could have a really big effect. And also, I know it's kind of a a topic that you're particularly interested in, but investment zones, that whole plan has changed. Who's going to be in charge there? They've moved to a whole different sector, right? Yes, yeah. So the idea with investment zones now appears to be that they're going to be linked to universities rather than um, just kind of being set up around the country, I guess, where people thought they would be a good idea. Um, so now they have to be linked to universities. I think the perception is that there'll be fewer of them than were planned under the Liz Truss programme. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I'm not really sure whether investment zones were ever a great concept. I think we talked on a previous podcast about the fact that for investment zones to work, they have to be bringing in brand new money, not simply bringing money from one part of the country into a zone um, from another. So, yeah, I think there's some big questions there around how that looks going forward. And I think the devolution agenda, as you say, is going to be important in that. I think the problem and concern might be that actually these get left, parts of the country get left behind. Mm. Um, Because if you've got a region that is well resourced and you know has a political uh, focus and a political drive such as whether it's you know west yorkshire combined authority whether it's greater manchester or one of the new ones that um, that jeremy hunt was talking about there will be pockets that don't fit into those so making sure that those don't get left behind is going to be quite important and i think the government alongside the energy efficiency stuff and, and its energy transition there's also the levelling up agenda, which might be the third prime minister now that talks about levelling up as a as a concept, but it's still there. The question is, 
you know, what does that look like for, for areas if they're not you know, recipients of devolution? Yeah, because I think he he vowed to match the levelling up fund, didn't he, for the previous years, which is an important step. But there was a moment in the House of Commons where he defined the devolution for certain areas and then some area in the northeast. Kind of don't want to say it's indicative, but we don't. We don't it's, it's yet to be resolved. Um, but it will be interesting to see how that unfolds because some areas do need a central not handout, but a, a way to influence the developments. And we've seen the success of that happening. And it's okay for, you know, Manchester or, or London to drive themselves because they've got such big economies. But how you manage that balance between central uplift and giving power down, that's going to be interesting to see. Yes, absolutely. And it comes back, doesn't it, to the age old problem that we talk about a lot um, over many years, really, around... Um, it's all very well saying we want to, you know, level up or whatever the language might be. Um, we want to invest and build new. Um, but realistically, if the land values aren't of you know, significant interest to the private sector, then it comes back to, well, where's the money going to come from? It's got to come from the public sector. There's got to be some way of either incentivizing the private sector to come in through, you know, uh, parceling up land with more land they would like to have to use or they have to find a way around it that you know maybe sees the public sector putting in some money so that it becomes less risky for the private sector yeah. um and you know we've, we've talked a lot about different models um we did the the podcast recently with Stuart mcmillan where we talked about different models in the uk and i think that's definitely something that needs to be considered if you're going to drive this agenda how you actually do that in practice in terms of getting things built and getting the money there to build it. Um, yeah, as I say, it's all very well sitting back and saying, oh, we'll, you know, we'll let the local devolution authority decide. But realistically, they're not going to have the, the financial clout to do that in, in all cases. Yeah, definitely. And just on kind of these new models, we've seen a lot in the UK on DPC, we've seen a lot of projects actually kind of progressing this kind of week is something i know you follow really closely so can you give us like a an update on what's been happening because it is one of the uk's most promising pipelines it is yes so dpc just a reminder direct procurement for customers it's the uh, program that the water sector has been um pursuing or being forced to pursue i guess to a certain extent by the regulator off what but yeah the last i guess month two months we've seen quite a lot of progress there so Clearly, the early work that's been going on in the background has sort of come to fruition and is starting to come to fruition. So, yeah, we've seen two more projects progressing with a second market engagement for Southern Waters project uh, and a, a pin being released for the Welsh Water Scheme as well. Those projects are sort of in the few hundred million bracket. So I think there'll be plenty of people who are looking at those and recognise the and understand the kind of the model. It's uh, you know, very similar to a a PVP that many people would be used to doing in the UK. Um, but I think most notably, perhaps, we've had the publication of the shortlist for the very first DPC in the programme, which is United Utilities Billion Pound Plus Horsewater Aqueduct Resilient Programme, or HARP. And the good news there is that they've got three bidders uh, on that project. I think there was some concern that the size of the project for the first one in this pipeline 
might put bidders off. And in fact, I know, you know, I've spoken to a few different people. They have said, yeah, interesting looking program. We're not bidding for half because it's too big. So the fact that they got three quite good large consortiums interested is uh, is definitely a big plus point, I think. And um, yeah, I'm sure Offwat and, and the whole team behind that are really pleased with that. I guess you know, the one question mark over it, perhaps not surprising, but there are not that many UK investors in those teams. We've got Equitix, which is in a team with Strabag, but really apart from that, it's being dominated, as we said in the announcement, um, by the big Spanish firms. So you know, the likes of Axiona, FCC, Dragados are all there, alongside some of the other big international players like uh, WeBuild, which has an Italian background, and SNC Lavalin. So yeah, what do you yeah. think about that sort of international flavour? It's an interesting thing to note. I mean, it is in the background of it being a success. Like you say, three teams, whoever they are, you get that competitive tension to really make this project a success. And as the first one, it's it's, it's something to really be um, to be praised. It is notable that it's Spanish teams, but they are the really big players on the global scale who can do these really large projects. But kind of harping back to what Jeremy Hunt was saying, it's good for the UK as a whole because there was question marks around kind of the international appeal of of investing in the UK at the moment. And this is definitely, you know, a point for Team UK in, in that direction. You've got an international team of players willing to get involved in, in our projects, which is fantastic. But as you mentioned before, we just spoke to Stuart McMillan for Burgess Salmon, who kind of laid out the landscape of all the different models in the UK. And this progression it is is really good. It, it just shows that there's lots of different strings to the UK's bow in terms of private investment. Um, and you've got the mutual investment model that recently reached financial close on the schools um, in Wales. We've got lots of regeneration. It does feel like there's something of a revival going on. And it's not the single model that we've seen before. But this kind of diversified nature of different ways of doing things being tried and also in this case actually being received successfully by the market yeah that's true and i think you know i had a conversation with someone just before the autumn statement actually where they were sort of saying slightly in a slightly exasperated way you know why doesn't the government just come along and say well let's do a sort of privately financed program where you know you make it clear that the private finance is additional to the public money going in um and yeah in a perfect world we would like to see that and we see that in other countries and it's packaged well and it's advertised to the public well um you know that's not the uk's history so i think we just have to accept that politically that's that's not what we're going to see but what we are going to see are these kind of different approaches coming out and uh, yeah the sort of the private finance model almost leaking through into other sectors so we brought up pipelines and leaking in a piece <laughs> yes. about um, not a good mix <laughs> about water, and I guess just one other thing going back to Jeremy Hunt as well is um, there was no mention of the priority list that was published back when Kwasi Kwarteng had his stab at being Chancellor, um, but I, again I'm not sure that that's necessarily a, a bad thing or a negative thing. I think you know when you looked at that priority list, a lot of them were simply projects that were in procurement or in progress and and on the way you know through the system things like sizewell c east west rail 
HS2, they were all mentioned in this sort of priority list. And you think, well, okay, we've, we've known about those. What makes them more of a priority now that they're just in this list? Just to kind of, I guess, round up on, on Jeremy Hunt's talk, I think you know, it's not the end of the world that there was no kind of mention of this priority list. I think it's um, perhaps indicative of the fact that you know, that was never perhaps something that the industry saw as particularly important anyway. Now let's turn our attention to the international market. Uh, Jonathan, you have been doing a bit of globetrotting and taking a close look at the Greek market lately. Yeah, there's a couple of um, interesting you know, signifiers going on outside of the UK and, and inside of Europe. In Greece, we've got a really fascinating market, really taking the first steps to solidify and scale up. We've got next week, which is on the 24th of November, a roadshow by the Greek government and also its advisors. Uh, and they're preparing or actively procuring 50 projects as multi-billions of pipeline, which is up for grabs. And it's in multiple sectors. You've got universities, roads, healthcare, irrigation, metros. It's huge. And this drive really comes right from the top of the Greek government. It's put really experienced advisors from some of the big four and as I said the EBRD to try and attract foreign investment and they're really keen on that note on foreign investment it's such a big pipeline they really need it and the expertise also that the international market can supply is essential in delivering it and they've got some it's an interesting point I've, I've written an article about this so I hope some people go and um, read it but they've got lots of unique elements to their PPP landscape. At the same time, as you would associate with Greece, you've got some fascinating archaeological limitations. You know, it's not difficult to imagine bumping into a temple of Apollo when you're trying to build a metro. But at the same time, going in their favour, they've got this ability to blend EU money into their projects, which makes the bankability a lot more accessible. So it's really one to watch. And I really think that it could become a centre of gravity for the PPP industry in Europe. And it's a fresh look. And as I said, it comes right from the top. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, absolutely. And there are not many places in the world, really, where you can say there's a clear pipeline of 50 projects that are up for grabs. Um, And again, actually, going back to the point earlier about international investors, I think, you know, Greece has a good number of local construction players uh, who you know, have historically won quite a few PPP projects in their own country. But I think that level of capacity will require more investors and more construction companies to come in and, you know, help help with that work. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more international investors coming across and, and looking at that market. Definitely. And, and as you said, it has been kind of domestically dominated in the past. They have done PPPs before. And um, one of the things that when I spoke to some of the advisors mentioned that you're going to need that local and international approach to the consortiums that are bidding this because it is a very local market, but they need this scaling up, as I said before. So it's definitely a curiosity, but hopefully going to be a very, very big new vein for projects. Yes, which would be really good to see in in Europe. And also, I think you've been having a little look at, at Ukraine, which is perhaps somewhere where people wouldn't initially think of as a a new market right now. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes from some signals that Ukrainian government has actually been putting out recently. 
Earlier this week, they signed a memorandum with BlackRock, the American investment giant, to help create a platform and to help really corral private investment into its future infrastructure. Because, you know, fingers crossed one day sooner rather than later, we're going to be needing to help Ukraine get back on its feet and rebuild the infrastructure that the illegal war uh, sparked by Russia is really destroying on, on a daily basis. And that toll, that tally of the need for, in dollars terms, is already at over $750 billion worth of infrastructure that's going to need to be built. So the task is huge. And as I said, the Ukrainian government has been putting out signals. They've hired the IFC to help prepare PPP projects to play its role. The US Treasury and the UK governments, not to mention other kind of international bodies as well, that have put private infrastructure on watch to help it get involved with this, whether that's through PPPs or other methods. So it's really something that I think we wanted to kind of bring to the attention of the industry, which sometimes we seem quite far away from it. But there could be a time where we're called upon to really play our part as well. Yes, certainly. And Ukraine as well had a history of doing PPPs. It knows how to do them. So it wouldn't be surprising then to see them using the model uh, more and more as they look to rebuild. Um, And I think a sort of good news story effectively for the industry is to be part of that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just on that previous usage, we've seen prior to the war, some really important projects in terms of ports on the Black Sea, which now we're all so used to that geography and we're seeing grain going in and out of similar ports. And only recently we saw the IFC starting to look for advisors for new projects on the Black Sea to help you know, deliver that infrastructure once again. So yes, it's it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one to talk about, obviously, because it's so it's so fresh and everything is still unfolding on a day-to-day basis and it's tragic. But the more preparation that the private sector can do to answer that call if it does come, the better. Yes, certainly, absolutely. Okay, and I think um, while we're on the subject of international PPPs and doing a bit of globetrotting, you obviously were hosting, as we talked about in a previous podcast, actually hosting a session at the World Bank's Industry Day recently. Um, And I think there were a few bits and pieces you want to bring up from that that we haven't talked about previously. Yeah, we spoke about it on the kind of US-focused podcast last time. But I wanted to also just kind of reiterate those points, is that at the World Bank annual meeting, there was a big conversation about PPPs and how to get private sector finance involved in rebuilding and re-sparking emerging markets. And the general consensus was there's a whole lot of money that is willing to go into this, but it's the bankable projects that are the problem in terms of stopping it going and stopping that flow. And that's obviously a a story we've heard for a long time. But the conversation that really what needed to happen was one about risk and how risk is re-evaluated and reassessed and, and put back into projects to help the bankability come forward. And I think in the context of, say, Greece, where you've got this EU funding, but then also, say, the archaeological element, that's an additional risk. And then in Ukraine, obviously, it's absurd to start talking about risk now, but it will need to be figured out. And that's without even mentioning inflation, that's without mentioning COVID. Risk is everywhere, and it needs to be 
brought not under control but able to be incorporated into projects because PPPs are a vital tool for emerging markets and it needs to be functional it needs to be bankable so that we can start to deliver what's needed yeah and I think that's there's a big education part there isn't there for people like the World Bank to do I think with um, governments around kind of almost what risk is and, and and how it's viewed by the private sector and so how you can mitigate some of the risk involved in any kind of infrastructure project. Um, yeah, that's obviously part of the work that they are doing and um, we'll need to keep on doing for, for some time. Definitely. Now, I've had that uneasy feeling again, which can only mean one thing. Our resident Snoop Hackett P. Dealsworth is back in the room to unearth some of the more unusual bits of news from the PPP industry. Hello again, Hackett. You're looking a bit worried today. Is something the matter? Well, as you know, Paul, I'm not one to get in a fluster, but I've been hearing some pretty scary things about the UK infrastructure market of late. Oh dear, what now? Well, I've been reading a few things about how the UK government has been reviewing everything. It's all up for grabs. It even size well see. Nothing is safe. Uh, did you miss the autumn statement, Hackett? Uh, possibly, yeah. Well, let me bring you up to speed. So, the good news is that Jeremy Hunt backed Sizewell C, along with some other projects such as East West Rail, which we've just been talking about on the podcast. But more than that, what I've been told is that current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is just as much behind Sizewell C as Boris Johnson was. And he's in fact keen to use it as a launchpad to develop a, a sort of a whole programme, really, of nuclear power projects, which I think really beds in Sizewell C as perhaps the first of many. So has that eased your concerns? Somewhat, yes. Thanks, Gov. Does that mean Crossrail 2 and the plans for the Great British Railways are safe then? Hang on there, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, This is a bit of a complicated area, really. Um, One of our recent transport secretaries, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, was very positive on the idea of public-private partnerships delivering projects. And at a parliamentary committee meeting, she cited the first Crossrail project as a fine example of this. But she also said there wouldn't be a bill introducing Great British Railways which is meant to be the new body to oversee the country's rail system, uh, at least not anytime soon. And then, of course, Transport for London really has no money for new projects, so the chances of something like Crossrail 2 getting off the ground seem fairly slim at the moment. And indeed, it wasn't mentioned by Hunt in his autumn statement, so it's all a bit unclear, really. Mm, no change there, then. Speaking of the British government, I noticed there's still no thought of using any sort of PPP model to help dig us out of our current financial hole. No, I think anyone waiting for an announcement will be left disappointed for some time to come. Yeah, well, one source has suggested the UK has become quite good at the DBF model. Really? I've seen one or two tenders for design-build finance projects recently, but I'd hardly say it to become a rush of deals. Oh, no, sorry. This is a different kind of DBF. Oh, yes. What's that? Design-build and F-off. Ah, I see. Um, Anything else, Hackett? Well, just a quick word before we go about the US midterms. From what I can make out, it looks like there's still plenty of support for new infrastructure investments over there. According to one analysis of voting, 88% of initiatives involving spending on transportation infrastructure were backed. Yeah, that is good news. Although the election results look to have given us a divided Congress, um, with the Republicans taking control of the House of Representatives, but the Democrats holding on to the Senate. True. But given that infrastructure is one area where the two sides have been willing to work together in the past, it might not be all bad. And don't forget the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act have already been passed by Congress, so there may not actually be much more work to do for the federal government. 
That's a good point. And actually, if listeners want to find out a bit more about the impact of the midterms, we've got an analysis piece on this on the P3 Bulletin website. Um, and that goes into this in a lot more detail. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you, Dealsworth. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. And don't forget to head to partnershipsawards.com to put in your entry for 2023.